So what I want to do today is I want to get through the rest of what I was supposed to get through yesterday. <laughs> and then I want to talk a little bit about what I want to actually talk about for the rest of the day. Because so far we've been in one part of, a, of an attempt to solve Descartes' problems. Um, and there is an entire different world of ways of trying to solve Descartes' problem um, that I want to uh, talk about here uh, afterwards. But I want to finish talking about realism a little bit here today to make sure that we're, that we're, we're clear on what this solution looks like. I was arguing yesterday that this realist approach, which is specifically about the reality or identifying the reality of things that cannot be directly observed and cannot be detected, right, that the reason why philosophers of science went in this direction was precisely because of some insoluble problems that were occurring within positivism strictly understood because of the notion that real-world data doesn't always actually give you these cross-case covariations. So instead, you need something like a laboratory to isolate and figure out that things that we can't detect, can't observe even in principle, right, irreducibly theoretical objects, are actually real. You know they're real in a realist approach because you can reproduce them artificially in a laboratory and elicit the causal powers of things in ways that the open system of the real world makes very, very difficult to perceive. So these kinds of objects, these kinds of theoretical objects, these causal powers of things, right? you only know them by what they do, and in particular, what they do in, real, in, in, in artificial environments that are abstracted from the real world. What you do as a procedure, if you are a realist, is you look out at these outcomes that are going on in the world, and you come up with what they would technically call an abductive conjecture. Instead of a hypothesis that is posed to cover the relationship between various things, you look at a variety of different instances and you kind of reason backwards like okay what kind of underlying causal power might have generated these sorts of outcomes that's just a speculation and what you do with that speculation is you try to work out some artificial lab-like way of evaluating whether that thing is actually real. So I see a variety of different kinds of objects moving in different ways. I abductively infer that there's some general force called electromagnetism that's pushing them in this way. I then create a lab-like situation to try to vet or validate or evaluate whether that mechanism is actually real. Real in this sense means reproducible in artificial laboratory conditions. Once I've got it, and once I've reproduced it in artificial laboratory conditions, I take it mentally back out into the world and say, okay, now this must actually be working out there in the world. And the reason why I don't observe perfect correlations in the real world is because perfect, the real world is an open system in which lots of different things are going on. So that's the way that a realist attempts to solve these kinds of problems. You must vet, isolate and vet your causal mechanisms. If you have a way of thinking about human beings and decision-making processes, for instance, you might observe a whole series of real-world decision-making processes, and then you abductively infer, speculatively infer, say, the existence of a process like groupthink. A bunch of people, if you put them together in a room for a period of time and have them debate things and cut off the information that they're getting to just one flow, are going to end up converging on a solution that's often going to be suboptimal. So you look at that, you observe it, you say, oh, there must be a mechanism that sort of inclines people to do this. So how do you vet this? Well, the way that you vet this is by putting a bunch of people in a room, feeding them certain pieces of information, and seeing whether they end up converging on suboptimal choices. And it turns out, gosh, they often do. How fascinating. So then you say, all right, there's a mechanism here. Let me take that mechanism out into the field and see what it does. Notice what you don't do. 
You don't say, these are laboratory results, and now I'm going to take those laboratory results and I'm going to use them to generate hypotheses that I can go out into the world and then try to test and see if the real world data confirms the existence of this causal power. That's not what you do. You already know the causal power is real because you found it in the lab. And then what you're going to do is you're going to put it into an explanation out there in the world, an explanation of an open system, in an open system. And the open system explanation is not going to be about a law-like generalization. It's going to be about a particular case-specific configuration of mechanisms and how those mechanisms come together in a particular case to generate something. So the gold standard for a realist is doing this in a laboratory. I've sort of suggested that certain kinds of psychological research in the social sciences could be sort of profitably understood in these terms. What do you do if you don't have a laboratory? What do you do if you don't have the ability to do things like put capitalism in a lab, poke it and prod it, and see what its causal powers are? Um, you know, you sort of can't. Well, one thing you could do is you could engage in the kind of simulation exercises that people who do agent-based modeling do. Although, as I'll argue a little later on, when as soon as you throw the word modeling into it, you're actually in a different methodological space. Um, but some people who are doing a more realist reading of those kinds of simulations would say, well, what simulations are is they're the closest we can get to a lab environment. So then you can like simulate capitalism and you can kind of see what its causal powers are. So the way in practice that a lot of social scientists do this, since they don't have access to labs, and parenthetically, I'm going to just bracket off the whole question of doing real-world experiments. Because real-world experiments, if you're a scientific realist, are prima facie suspect. And the reason why they're prima facie suspect is because experiments for a realist take place under controlled laboratory conditions. That's it. End of sentence. You cannot do experiments in an open system because they don't tell you anything if you are a realist. And the reason you can't do that is precisely because you can never get rid of all possible confounding variables. The kind of faith that those that really talk about field experiments often have in the magic powers of the central limit theorem to produce law-like generalizations from messy real-world data is not a faith that is shared by realists. Because for realists, if you can't put it in a lab and manipulate it, you really don't know. You're still just speculating about the existence of particular kinds of causal powers. So in the absence of a lab, what realists would argue that you do is you engage in transcendental argument. And what is transcendental argument? Transcendental argument is an argument about conditions of possibility. So a typical kind of realist argument when it comes to explaining certain sorts of outcomes is to say things like, if it were not for the existence of certain kinds of material properties, say, of weapons, then we would not be able to explain certain sets of conflicts because those conflicts require not just changes in social relations, but they require physical capacities for people to cause harm. And we actually therefore need to talk about the intrinsic properties of certain kinds of materials, certain kinds of weapons, certain kinds of engineering of death, as it were. Those sorts of transcendental arguments allow us to say, okay, so since we can't imagine the outcome without these things, that's about as close as we can get to a lab experiment with doing this, because we just can't think outside of this. It is a second best solution. And a good realist is always going to be looking for ways of taking whatever they've come up with, even through transcendental argument, and figuring out something like a laboratory to be able to investigate them. Because that's the gold standard where this kind of knowledge actually comes from. 
Now, as I said, what a realist would want to do is a realist would want to take these causal powers that we've discovered and we've abductively inferred and then we've sort of vetted and tested them in a lab. What then happens to those things? You take them back out into the world. And when you take them back out into the open system of the real world, you're not expecting to find well-verified correlations. What you are expecting to find are different kinds of sequences and interactions. So, going with the hypothetical example um, from, of groupthink from before, if you have managed to isolate a mechanism, a psychological mechanism of groupthink, you do not therefore think that every time you put a group together, you're going to get groupthink. What you do think is, under certain circumstances, that mechanism would interact with other kinds of mechanisms in the world and produce an outcome which would be suboptimal. In other cases, that might not happen because that mechanism might interact with other kinds of things. And so you would get different sorts of outcomes. You can't reason directly from inputs to outputs the way you do in a neopositivist hypothesis <laughs> testing environment. Instead, you have to really talk about the particular sets of sequences and interactions between these different causal powers. To use the really prosaic example that lots of realists are fond of, um, if you want the seed to grow, you better plant it before you water it. <laughs> Because just having the element of water is not necessarily going to make the seed grow in the correct way. You actually need the right sequence of things in order to put these together. And, of course, watering is never going to be sufficient to give you the seed growing. You need things like soil. You need other kinds of nutrients. You need light, so on and so forth. It's a particular configuration of causal powers that generates the outcome. Not any one of them and not any one of them or not a bunch of them just kind of randomly thrown together. They have to be sequenced in particular ways. And if you are a realist, you say that is because these objects that we are manipulating have real intrinsic capacities. That this is not a matter of whim on our part. Right? The seeds grow not because we will them to. The seeds grow because they have inherent capacities to do things under certain kinds of circumstances. And our job as scientists is to find out what those capacities are. And our job as social scientists, in particular, is to make sure that all of our accounts have what many realists would argue is kind of the key dispositional property of human beings at its center, which is agency. And remember, one of the problems sometimes identified with neo-positivist approaches is that it's really hard to have agency if you have no law-like generalizations. Because a law-like generalization is by definition invariant, and if you end up having agency, then agency is either constrained by the law-like generalization, or the law-like generalization is just an arbitrary product of an agent and could be changed if the agent did something else. So that presents a little bit of a problem, something Talcott Parsons called the utilitarian's dilemma in a book that he wrote back in the 1930s. Um, so to get around this, realists say, uh-uh, that's not what we need because, in fact, since we, don't, we live in the open system of the real world, the open system of the real world does not show us law-like generalizations under most circumstances. Instead, what it shows us is interactions of causal powers, the key one being human agency. So human beings deliberately put certain kinds of causal powers together to generate different kinds of outcomes. So if you're trying to give a realist account, you almost always have to have human agency at the center of it to be able to say, why did these powers get activated in the way they did? Why did these get sequenced in this way? Why did this plant grow? Because somebody planted it and then they watered it. Right? So this idea that human beings are always evolved, especially when you're talking about social relations, because you can imagine situations in which the plant would grow without any human beings being there, but it would be awful difficult to imagine how 
universities would exist without human beings being there, right? We've deliberately arranged the causal powers of this place to go in particular directions. We've deliberately arranged the intrinsic causal powers of matter working at the subatomic level to create solid state electronics that allow us to do these absolutely miraculous things like display words on the board, right? So that's not an accident. There's agency involved in how we've put these things together. That gives certain kinds of capacities for action to explain how I'm able to do this requires, according to a realist, a deep examination of how human agency works and how it works to produce conditions, how it works to produce conditions for future activity. That's what social science is for a realist, actualizing the potentials that are really there, that we have found are really there through these kinds of investigatory techniques. So what you're trying to come up with as a realist is a kind of richer ontology of the social world that is something other than just a speculative ontology. You speculate about the possible causal powers of things, but then you've got to go out there and validate them. You've got to go vet them in some way. Um, there are boundaries on action because of the intrinsic capabilities of things. Try though I might, try though I have, it is not possible to fly as an individual unaided human being by jumping off of a third story building. Um, you can try. You're generally not going to take flight. Um, you're not going to take flight not because you don't believe hard enough. You're not going to take flight because of certain things intrinsic to the way in which uh, physical objects work in a 1G field, right? So there are ways in which you can say there are causal powers that constrain what our agential capacities are. But a realist would say those very same limitations produce other sorts of possibilities, which is to say if I want to fly, Throwing myself off a building isn't going to do it, but there are ways that I can fly by harnessing the real causal powers of nature to do things like get on an airplane or design an airplane and then fly in it, right? So agency is both created and constrained by these sorts of powers, and agency is itself a causal power that human beings have. That's the way realist social science works, that you are supposed to be talking about these real powers and what you can do. Now, the knock on realism sometimes is that realism is just a more sophisticated kind of metaphysics because of this requirement that causal powers are undetectable. And the importance of causal powers being undetectable is precisely that this means that they have untapped potential. If you could ever exhaustively define what the causal powers of some object or some set of social relations was, then you would have eliminated all possibility that it would ever be able to do anything else under any possible circumstances. And realists would say that would only happen if you're in a closed world or in a closed environment like a lab. So in a lab, you can exhaustively figure out like what magnetism does. But there's no way you can exhaustively specify all the properties of, of a magnet in such a way that it would allow you to forecast every possible thing a magnet would do under every possible circumstance. Realists would say this is actually fortunate. And the reason why it's fortunate that causal powers are like this is because if we could exhaustively define them, then there would never be any kind of critical potential. It is not an accident that many, if not all, well, not all, not quite all, most realists in the social sciences tend to be some form of Marxist. And the reason for this, I think, has a lot to do with the fact that Marxism as a research program or as a theoretical program is not just a set of academic narratives about how the world works, but is an effort to try to change and transform the world by pushing it in particular sorts of directions. If you're doing that, you gosh well better believe 
that the things you're talking about are not just fictions of your own imagination, but are real properties of the world. That capitalism and alienation and oppression are not just sort of convenient ordering techniques, but are actually things that are happening out there, and that they have some kind of potential that is not just exhausted by the current things that they have produced. If capitalism only produced these kinds of systems, then we would basically be stuck. How could you possibly change that? But if capitalism has yet unrealized potentials for revolutionary transformation, okay, now we can actually engage with it and actually have some hope of doing something that actually moves us in a different kind of direction. So that undetectability requirement for realists specifically allows you to do something like a critical social science. Neopositivists can't do this. For neopositivists, the world is exhausted by the kinds of correlations that we are able to see. It is phenomenalist. It stays on the measurable surface of phenomena, whereas realists don't. Right? Now, the danger, if you are a realist, is what is sometimes called or caricatured as ontotheology. I have posited the existence of some causal power. I have collected enough evidence that I think it's a real thing, and now I'm going to go forth and keep acting on it. This is usually the, mark, the, the uh, criticism that you get of Marxist approaches by Non-Marxists who say, yeah, you're just kind of doing theological reasoning here. You've already convinced yourself that there are such things as working classes that are going to be marching through history in this sort of way, and now you're just kind of looking for confirmatory evidence. How does a realist respond to this kind of danger, this kind of potential trap? Well, what the realist would respond is to say, you know, if I use this kind of approach and I talk about things like class oppression and I talk about the ways in which alienation work, I can explain outcomes that you can't explain if you don't use these things. So the explanatory payoff of the assumption is something that a realist can use to say, I must be talking about something real here, otherwise my explanation wouldn't work. So it's as if one was to say, I know this is a magnet, because if I don't use the, the theoretical postulate of its magnetism, I can't explain things that it does in the world. I need that. The, the explanatory utility of the theoretical term is evidence that it is plugged into the world somehow, <laughs> that you couldn't just be making it up. Because if you were just making it up, it would be possible to create explanations that didn't use that thing to begin with. So this is the way that a realist would respond to that particular kind of charge. Well, let me go out into the world and actually show you the explanatory payoff of, of, of talking about things in this way. Sometimes what a realist will conclude from this is that it actually the empiricism of neo-positivist approaches is conservative because it simply reproduces existing orders, whereas the kind of metaphysics that a realist engages in can actually be revolutionary because it can find untapped potentials in causal powers. This is an interesting reversal of something that we were talking about two days ago, precisely where the logical positivists argued the opposite, that actually metaphysics is the thing that's conservative because it holds existing orders in place, and the only way you get around it is by doing empirical research that's progressive. That's what creates something different, because now we are sure that our knowledge plugs into the world because we have empirical attempts to verify it. So the realists and the positivists and the logical positivists and the neo-positivists, they're all still arguing about the same basic thing. They're just taking different positions within this field. 
how do I know that my knowledge is directly plugged into the world? Does it plug in at the level of observation, phenomenal, or does it plug in at the level of deeper, undetectable objects that are still explanatorily useful, so sort of transfactual, to use the term that Roy Bascar often uses to talk about these things. The idea being that if I'm in a laboratory and I've seen something work in a lab, I make a transfactual assumption that those same causal powers will continue out into the world because the thing that was a magnet in the lab is not suddenly going to not be a magnet as soon as I take it out of the lab. So the power goes with it in some ways, and I can still use that to explain things. So this is the idea. You can see what they're still all basically arguing about the same thing. Who's got the better track on how you make a revolution? Who's got the better track on how you reform things? Who's got the better solution to that problem of Cartesian anxiety by making sure that our knowledge is absolutely secure and still plugged in to the right place? So we're still operating in that same kind of area, but the difference for a realist is that you've actually got two different kinds of possible progress in realist social science, a realist science in general, you've got explanatory progress, a richer ontology of the world. Now we know what the world is really composed of, to use the um, graphic image that realists sometimes utilize. Uh, the point of science is to, quote unquote, carve nature at its joints to figure out exactly what is really going on and find those particular pieces. So real causal powers, you know, things that are actually out there, things that actually exist. So a realist would look at our knowledge of the world and say, oh, clearly we're getting closer to real knowledge of things because we have a better grasp on what really is out there in the world. And in some ways, the best argument that realists use for um, or the argument they feel is strongest for, uh, for how they defend themselves is to say, if we weren't steadily approaching a better knowledge of the actual world, the kinds of technological progress that we have made would appear a miracle because then there'd be no way to explain it. It's often called the miracle argument. It's Hillary Putnam is a philosopher of science that, uh, that uh, sort of is, is fond of using this particular argument. So if we didn't have some notion of real, our knowledge really approximating what's really going on in the world, how else would we explain computers? How else would we explain airplanes? How else would we explain all of the sorts of technological things that we live in the middle of? We must have a better grasp of the real powers in the world. Even if it's an imperfect grasp still, it's better than it used to be because we can do things that our ancestors could not. But that's not the only kind of progress if you're a realist. There's another kind of progress which is the social progress that comes from eliminating illusions, which is gonna sound awful familiar from thinking about logical positivism. Logical positivists were concerned about getting rid of metaphysical nonsense. Realists are concerned about getting rid of nonsense metaphysics. Slightly different. They still wanna have metaphysics, but they say there's good metaphysics, which is about the actual causal powers that exist, and then there's the crap metaphysics, which is the stuff where we imagine that things have powers that they don't actually have. And we wanna get rid of those things, and in particular, the kinds of ideological narratives that are built on those false grasps of reality. So these illusions that we then live within, the kinds of illusions, realists would tell us, that hold things like neoliberal capitalism in place by convincing us that there's no other alternative and the only kinds of causal powers that exist are the sorts of causal powers that we have as worker bees in a drone system or something along those lines. So the point being, if you are a realist, you could do both of these things at the same time, right? There's still a social project here the same way as there was in logical positivism. 
right? The critical part of critical realism, and within the social sciences, by the way, people will talk about realism often as critical realism, not just as realism. Part of that is because of a weird terminological confusion if you know anything about international relations, where there's an international relations theoretical school called realism. And funny story, in the early days of people in IR starting to talk about scientific realism in these terms, they would often get placed on panels with IR realists. So you'd have three people talking about the balance of power and the irreducibility of weapons and so on and so forth, and then somebody, and it was usually Fred Chernoff, who would show up and be like, I'm not talking about that kind of realism. I mean, and he'd go on this whole shtick about, about uh, the realism as a philosophy of science, which would leave a lot of people in the audience kind of scratching their heads and going, one of these things doesn't really belong here. I'm not sure what's going on. Um, so they often will use the particular, the particular sort of ad ad adjectival modifier, a critical realism. And that also plays really well in, uh, in IR circles, because if there's one thing realists aren't in IR, it's critical. Um, so the idea here is that it, the critical part of critical realism is that you can then produce uh, recommendations for action that are based not on fancy, but are based on real causal powers. So I can actually recommend certain modes of organizing against global capitalism, not just on the basis of the fact that I don't like global capitalism, but I can recommend those things based on my own proper grasp of the real transformative potentials of existing political, economic, and social relations. So that's kind of the bet that goes into this sort of realist progress, right? So, all the thing that makes this work, right? The thing that makes all of this kind of realist approach to these things work is that ultimately there is still a maintaining of that core thing that neopositivists thought they could solve that they inherited from Descartes. How do you effectively make your subjective knowledge mirror the objective world? That mind-world gap is still absolutely essential in realism the same way as it is in logical positivism, neopositivism, the very sort of flavors that come out of that attempt to solve the Cartesian problem. They all operate within this metaphysical dualism, you might call it, mind-world dualism of ways in which the world is still ultimately out there, mind independently, knowledge is still supposed to conform to it. It's just that if you are a realist, you don't do it by hypothesis testing, you do it by these laboratory isolations of causal powers and seeing what you can come up with that way. Now, everything we've talked about so far this week, then, is still within this kind of ontological dualism. It turns out that there is an entire other way of attempting to resolve some of these Cartesian problems. And the entire other way of trying to resolve some of these Cartesian problems is by unasking the root Cartesian question. Because if the root Cartesian question is how does the subjectively existing autonomous mind know anything for sure about the mind independently existing objective external world, one way you can get out of this is by saying, yeah, that's not the place to start. <coughs> we shouldn't be starting with independent minds. We shouldn't be starting in the same place of what you might call philosophical ontology. We should not start with the same situation of the, uh, the, 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 uh, the knower and the known. We should not start with that same kind of subject-object distinction. Instead, we should be thinking about something else. And the way we do that is by first realizing that philosophical ontology 
is not a comment about the mind or the world. It's about the relationship between them. It's about how they're connected to each other, how the knowing subject is plugged into the world. Dualism says the way the mind is plugged into the world is by looking at the world over a huge gulf and trying to figure out how to jump over that particular gulf or gap. Um, And the Cartesian anxiety comes when you don't know if you've actually made the leap or if you're going to end up falling into the abyss, uh, which is always the problem for Descartes. And I use that language advisedly because if we don't actually have absolutely secure knowledge that allowed us to fall, to not fall into the knowledge abyss, we also might not have knowledge that prevents us from falling into the abyss of what happens after death when you all get sent to hell. So there's a theological thing that's still driving a bunch of this framing. Remember Descartes' project. We're all still kind of within that when it comes to those sorts of formulations. Dualism you might say, is the idea or the positing that there is such a thing as a mind-independent world that's out there and you have to figure out how to know something about it, right? The world has its own autonomous existence that's out there someplace, and our job as knowers is to make sure that we are drawing representationally accurate, effective pictures of that world. It's a representational notion or correspondence notion of truth that's sort of wrapped up in this this ontological dualism. There is an alternative. And the alternative, which was explored in smaller ways sort of before the mid to late 19th century, but really starts to become prominent in European philosophical thought around then, um, is the idea that we don't start with this kind of mind-independent world. We start off with not dualism, but with ontological monism. So let me clear up a couple of quick misconceptions about ontological monism before we go any further. And the reason I have to clear those up to start out with is because ontological dualism in the mind-world sense is so much a part of our very (coughs) grammar of thinking that when you first see what a monistic approach looks like, you're probably going to read it through dualist lenses. Because that's sort of the way we've been taught to read things and the way we've been taught to cash out philosophical ideas. So when you first hear that monists reject the dualism of the mind and the world, the first thing that that often sounds like is idealism. It sounds like, oh, if there's no mind-independent existing world, then that must mean that ideas make the world, which is kind of what a, what a classical idealist position is like. Monism is not actually an idealism. And the reason why you can say, I can say with great amount of certainty that monism is not, in fact, idealism is because idealism, the privileging of ideas over the world, still presumes the distinction between the mind and the world. It just inverts the priority and says, yes, there's still a gulf, but the gulf does not mean that the mind has to sort of conform itself to the world. Instead, the world is made by the mind, right? That would be an idealist position. This is reverse Descartes. Or if you had to slip a name onto it to sort of sum it up, the name you would probably want to slip onto it is Bishop Berkeley, a particular English philosopher who was also a bishop. Bishop wasn't actually his first name, it's his title. Um, And Berkeley is a classical idealist who basically says, you know, empirical perceptions are not really all that. What's actually important is ideas. Ideas are much more important. The world is produced by the ideas that we have of it. It's the sort of thing that when when Samuel Johnson tries to refute, he refutes it by kicking a rock and then says, ah, I refute Berkeley thus. Boom, kicks a rock. So that idealism is just Descartes with inverse polarity. 
right? I mean, that's basically where we're at. So that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about monism. The other thing we're not talking about when we talk about monism is we're not talking about subjectivism or the idea that sort of subjective notions and the will ends up making the world in a particular way. And again, the reason you can say with great certainty that that's not monism is because to say that the subject exists and the subject has power over the object is still to posit the distinction between subjects and objects as the fundament for thinking, right? It's not the case that if you are a monist that you somehow believe, you know, contrary to Hamlet, that thinking makes things so. That is not the position that a monist takes. But these are the ways that a dualist misunderstands what the monist position is. Because for a dualist, the mind-world dichotomy is the fundament, the sort of basic wager that's being made. So anybody who doesn't make that wager looks like they're actually just taking the other side. They're actually just taking the idealistic side. Not actually the way a monistic work goes. So the way that a monist tries to do this instead is by saying we're not going to still play within the Cartesian formulation. We're actually going to suggest that maybe the Cartesian formulation got us off on the wrong foot several hundred years ago, and we shouldn't have started there in the first place. Maybe we should have started someplace entirely different. Instead of starting with an autonomous knowing subject locked up in his own subjective tower trying to figure out whether he could trust the evidence of his senses, maybe we should start with knowers as being concretely embedded and embodied beings. That there was something wrong with Descartes' whole doubting procedure. And in fact, what a monist would often point out is that Descartes, in his attempt to find the thing that was absolutely certain, starts doubting a whole lot of things and he doubts all sorts of stuff. But you notice what he never doubts. He never doubts the language that he speaks. And where did he get that from exactly? When did he learn how to speak if he was just an autonomous knowing subject with no world around him? Or as Norbert Elias would later satirize it, um, was Descartes never a child? Did he never grow up? And if he did, he obviously brought into that tower with him a whole series of social conventions. As monists, especially monist linguistic philosophers, would then later point out, Descartes' very formulation, cogito ergo sum, is a grammatical formulation because obviously sum, it's already part of cogito. You've conjugated the verb in the first person. By conjugating the verb in the first person, of course your own existence is implied because you've conjugated the verb in the first person. You brought the language in with you. You didn't get outside. You're still inside. Knowledge for a monist is always internal to social relations. There's no outside to get to. Not because the world doesn't exist, but because what we call the world is produced intersubjectively by the ways in which we negotiate our being with it and with each other. You do not start with constitutively autonomous subjects as a monist. Instead, you begin with concrete sets of knowledge-laden social transactions, many of which are encoded in the language that we use. Therefore, there is no mind-independent world to be known precisely because there are no world-independent minds to know it. That's not the place where we are, which is different than saying that the world does not exist. It is to say the way in which the world exists is different than a dualist would conceptualize it. The world does not exist on its own in a mind-independent way, but instead, mind and world are deeply joined sort of at the bottom level, if you will, not observationally, but at the, sort of the, the relational level. So what is central, what is absolutely central to a monistic approach is not knowledge of the world that represents it, but the process through which we as embedded and embodied knowers come to generate 
workable knowledge of the world and our places in it. In particular, the process by which we generate things that we think of as valid findings has to be taken seriously as the origin of the knowledge that we have. Not, here is the finished product and let me compare it to the world, but what is the process by which that knowledge is produced? And it is that process that's absolutely central for a monist. Practical involvement with the world, not detached viewing of it, is what is central to a monistic approach. Now, I warned you that eventually your friend and mine, Ludwig Wittgenstein, would return. And he did in Wittgenstein II, The Revenge, um, <clears throat> in which, or Wittgenstein II, Electric Boogaloo. Um, the, uh, after having thought he solved all the problems of philosophy, Wittgenstein had the opportunity to reconsider when he was spending two years being an architect for his sister's house. Um, and also because around this time in Vienna, there were a number of folks who were really excited about this demonstration, mathematical demonstration, of what's called the Gödel undecidability theorem. And this is Kurt Gödel, young Austrian mathematician, who demonstrated formally that a formal system could never be both complete and consistent. Now, there's a little caveat there. It's a formal system sophisticated enough to model in basic arithmetic, but whatever. The idea being that you cannot exhaustively define the limits of the logical logically. Ponder that for a second. If you can't actually do that, then the whole project, the whole positivist project of attempting to figure out the boundaries between science and non-science kind of disappears because you can't ever draw a final boundary. Uh-oh, now what the hell are we supposed to do? So through that hole comes a whole series of interesting meditations on this and leads Wittgenstein to reconsider some of his earlier insistence on the ways in which sense and nonsense could be bound and demarcated from each other. So he revisits his own earlier work and revises his logical demonstrations from the Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus into what he calls an approach based on language games. And a language game for Wittgenstein is simply the ways in which words are used. So a language game are the sorts of things that we do with words. I mentioned earlier that there was this whole thing where the folks at Oxford pretended that Cambridge didn't exist. Um, the fact that, uh, that John Austin called his most famous book How to Do Things with Words, while Wittgenstein is sort of doing these things at Cambridge, uh, sort of suggests to me that there might have been a little bit more exchange going on um, than they would like to admit. But point being, Wittgenstein's whole the way of thinking about this was when we use words or symbols or anything else, we are basically playing a game with them. There are interactive possibilities that are not contained in the object itself, but in the ways in which we use it. There's no intrinsically stable meaning to a word except that we continue to use it in a consistent sort of way. And we use it in different sorts of ways depending on the context in which we're using it, right? So you can pick a word up as a kind of neutral counter and plop it down in an entirely different game and it means something entirely different. Not because the word has changed, because our use of it has changed. So what you have in a sort of strong formulation that Wittgenstein has here is that when you are engaged in a language game of any sort, you are not coming up with a private subjective meaning that you then use the word to try to beam into somebody else's head. Instead, when you use a word, you are making a move in a public game that is publicly comprehensible. So my favorite example, can I borrow this for a second? So what color is that? Red, mm-hmm. Nobody said it was green, nobody said it was orange, nobody said it was black, right? Why? 
Because we've been taught, we've been taught in proper use of words, that the word to describe whatever the heck it is that goes on in your retina and your brain processes, which could be totally different than whatever's going on in my head, we've been taught that the word for that is red. Okay, cool, that's enough. The word red doesn't exist up here. Red isn't here. Red is here. How we use it. How we use the word is the important thing. Languages are not the public communication of private meaning. Languages are inherently public. Meaning is inherently public. Meaning is inherently intersubjective. You see, there's no gulf, there's no mind-world gap that has to be crossed here. In a way, whenever we use language to express ourselves, we're already, to use sort of the Heideggerian formulation, we're already out in front of ourselves. We're already kind of out here someplace. We're not in here, so that gulf disappears. But Wittgenstein then quickly realized that the problem with simply saying that language was use and meaning is use is that formal rules don't actually tell you how to play them. So I can't exhaustively define for you all the circumstances under which the word red is an appropriate use of the word red. And in fact, when you learned the use of the word red, you didn't learn it by memorizing a bunch of rules about what was red and what wasn't. How did you learn to use the word red? You learned to use the word red because you used it in situations and somebody, for children, it's probably their parents, said to them, that's not red, that's orange, that's green, that's black. Oh, okay, so then I kind of figure it out. But even that, right, no set of exhaustive definitions of the word red are gonna capture all possible uses of the word red particularly once you start thinking not just about descriptive uses, but about metaphorical uses, broadly speaking, right? then you can have the way in which the word red is used in very, very different kinds of contexts. And how do we figure these things out? We figure them out by using them. We figure them out by using them and by having people correct us and by negotiating tacitly the use of things. I come up with a new formulation of something. I put that formulation out. People go, oh, yeah, okay, that's kind of a cool formulation. And then they pick it up and they keep using it. This is how languages change, how languages drift. Right? This is why it's so hard to exhaustively come up with an encyclopedia or a dictionary that locks down the use of words. Because even if you can do that, it's only at a particular point in time. And somebody could use a word differently tomorrow, and then the word changes and evolves and moves. So Wittgenstein argued that the rule specification for how words are used is never exhaustive. Language games are always embedded in what he called a form of life, a practical consensus, right? a tacit agreement about how we decide the outcomes of various things. So that kind of practical consensus has the strange property of not being formally summarizable in explicit language. You have to live it. You have to be part of it. You have to experience it. You have to sort of figure it out. And everybody who's ever learned a foreign language, something different than the tongue they grew up speaking, knows exactly what I am talking about because there's the book version and then there's the actual version, and the actual version doesn't always look exactly like the book version. Does that make the book version a hypothesis that has been falsified? No. It means that the book version is a particular abstraction, a particular summary of use patterns, but that pattern is not, the, knowing that pattern isn't enough to allow you to reproduce it. To reproduce it, you actually have to go, be there, figure out how to do that particular kind of speaking in a way that you can then be recognized as a legitimate speaker of the language. Wittgenstein suggested that this was not just true of languages spoken. This is true of knowledge in general. This is true of all modes of knowing. This is even true of formal mathematical logic. Formal mathematical logic doesn't tell you how to enact itself. Formal mathematical logic is itself a language game erected on a particular form of life. 
And though Wittgenstein himself was a little wary of going here, I think we as social scientists can maybe push this one step further, those forms of life are not accidental, arbitrary creations that we whip up amongst ourselves on a day-to-day -day basis. They have histories. They have trajectories. They have traditions that they build on. So the use of words that we have, the form of life that gives meaning to the kinds of uses of language that we currently engage in, has a history to it. And we are bringing in that history whenever we use words in particular ways. And in that way, you notice I can describe that entire thing without talking about a gulf between the mind and the world. The world is then something that we interactively and intersubjectively produce through what you might call involved knowing, rather than this kind of Cartesian gulf-crossing procedure. So the kind of knowledge that we as social scientists produce comes from sets of primary involvements that we have in and with the world. But what's fascinating about scientific knowledge, academic knowledge, the kind of thing that we as professional researchers produce, is that our primary involvement in a lot of ways is actually with each other and with the community of other scientists. And we know this because in order to get a job, well, let's go back even further than that. In order to get your PhD, right, you have to get somebody, let's call that person your advisor, to recognize that what you're doing is legitimate. Right? That they're part of this. You're getting your PhD as a certification process in some ways. Like, I'm a member of the club now. I have a license. I have a license to think. I have a license to write. I can do these things. Not quite as cool as license to kill, but, you know, that's why they don't make movies about academics in the same way as they do movies about James freaking Bond. Um, but that's our primary sort of day-to-day -day involvement is with other researchers and with other ways in which people are trying to produce knowledge. We're looking for ways to communicate things in our research that other members of that community, which if we take Wittgenstein seriously, is not just a set of formal logical rules, but an entire practical set of activities that's concretely organized that we've been socialized into. Because the other thing about getting your PhD is that you learn the norms implicitly of the community so that you can communicate with it effectively and appropriately. And this is why getting a PhD is such a totally alienating experience for a lot of people, because you come into it and you're like, what the? Why? Why is this the legitimate way to do it? Well, okay, there's a history to it, and you can explain it that way. Ask for a broader rational justification of it, people, Psh, I don't know. That's just what people did. That's just how it works. Like, that's what you'll get. Wittgenstein says that at a certain point, every kind of questioning of why a form of life is the way it is eventually reaches a point where somebody just says, stop asking. Because that's just what, at a certain point, there's a kind of like, this is just how we do it. This is just how we do these things. And that's just a reflection of, of, of sort of what we've got. So if you are talking about the production of academic knowledge in this way, then what we are doing is we're communicating to others, we're using the kinds of tools and procedures that are floating around in our local social environment to communicate the kinds of things that we have found. We are, if we want to use the, to push this step further along this kind of Wittgensteinian direction, by reproducing and communicating our results to one another, we are, in effect, producing a world, a shared world, through the exchange of symbols. We are, as one of my favorite academic uh, theorists on this stuff, a guy named John Schotter once argued, we are talking ourselves into a particular picture of the world. 
That's what we do when we do academic research. We talk ourselves into a particular picture of the world. We exchange things with each other. We use the techniques and tactics that are part of the community that we are a part of to be able to produce and reproduce certain things that we regard as factual. Now, notice this is not a dualistic, we make the world up. This is a monistic, the world itself is what we interactively produce by dealing with each other and dealing with things that we are researching, right? So world is an endogenous product of our social and knowledge producing interactions. It is not something that we represent abstractly. It is something we concretely produce and reproduce and generate. And the key word here is that we generate that consensus not subjectively and not objectively hypothesis testing wise, but intersubjectively between us. Tomorrow I want to talk a little bit more about betweens before I then talk about the final alternative to how people do this, which is the much more critical version. So.